riding on a little road through a huge moorland just dotted with little scrubby trees. The sea off to my left, though I can't see it just now. And I'm on Arran, and I'm on my way to Macri Moor, where we're going to see. Um, well, actually, I think mostly we're going to be talking about things we largely can't see. And at Macri Moor, we're going to be looking at all right, a site that has some stone circles. But with our expert, we're going to investigate the things that are no visible traces of anymore, really. The wooden structures that in many places came before the stone ones. Lots of stone circles are in exactly the same place as previous timber circles. And that's the case at Machimur. So we're turning off the main road onto a little track. Machimur stone circle says the sign. My name is Matthew McGee and I've travelled by bike, boat and train to eight of Scotland's most beautiful, remote and fascinating Neolithic sites, talking to expert archaeologists about the secrets these stone monuments still hold about life 5,000 years ago, at that moment when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and settled as farmers for the first time, when there was an explosion of culture that we're still discovering today. In this programme, we will uncover the secrets of the lost ancient wooden monuments that lie beneath the stone circles. We'll hear about the pilgrims who travelled hundreds of miles to make a sacred procession through Machrimur's many stone circles. And we'll find out what it feels like to build and then burn down your very own timber circle. This is Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. About a mile down that track, the stone circles start. First one on a little rise, then another. They're to your left and your right. One's made out of three or four big majestic sandstones, others with curious arrangements and shapes, others just little granite stumps in the ground. I've never been anywhere with so many in such good condition, in such close proximity, and it's quite overwhelming. But we're here for two circles in particular, the two at the farthest end of the track, Circle 1 and Circle 11, numbered so that archaeologists know exactly which one you're talking about. I'm on this raised moorland with actually a little bit more variety in vegetation than, than a lot of moorlands. There are quite a lot of bushes and some trees as well as the scrubby grassland. And we're in this valley between some of the hills that run up the middle of Arran and the sea, the west coast, with the Kintyre Peninsula visible just on the other side of that little stretch of water. So it's a raised position, but quite a big, broad, flat moor. And there are stone circles everywhere, <laughs> everywhere you look. And this is obviously, like a couple of other places we're talking about in this series, you know, a, a ceremonial landscape. This isn't an isolated monument or two. This is, this is a place where people have put a lot of time and effort and resources into building lots of places to, oh, whatever people were doing, gather, worship, celebrate, venerate, remember, forget. Circle One is about 20 metres in diameter, with incredibly regular stones, alternating between small granite and slightly larger sandstone. 
Circle 11 is just a few metres away and is smaller, with stones only about 30 centimetres high, and with about two-thirds of its interior waterlogged, with reeds growing out of it. One of the many signs of climate change-induced increased rainfall that we've seen on our travels. I'm Kenny Brophy, I'm a senior lecturer in archaeology at the University of Glasgow. So where we're standing just now in Macri Moor was, was, was in effect almost an island within a, a waterlogged landscape. And so obviously that's why it was chosen for being a place where people are doing stuff. So what we're standing on here is the kind of is a raised plateau of land that would have been an obvious focus for activity for, for people in the Neolithic. What are we looking at here? So this is uh, Circle One which is notable because of the combination of two different types of stone in the one circle. So we've got the big granite boulders, which are very likely glacial erratics, and then we've got these slightly stubby little sandstone, stones in between, and they alternate very nicely as well, where you've got granite, sandstone, granite, sandstone. In terms of the stone circle itself, which this, it illustrates one of the magical things about Macri Moor, which is about the, the geology of the, the standing stones and how they relate to the broader island. And this is something that we, are, they, we have the, 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 the metaphorical representation of the island in a monument because Arran is often known as Scotland in miniature because it's got the lowlands and the uplands with the highland boundary fault in between. So the sandstone is representing the fertile southern half of the island, the, the kind of the inhabited farming landscape. And then the granite is representing the mountainous north. So you've got the, the whole mountain, the landscape encapsulated in one monument. It's highly unusual to have different types of stone material, especially in this really highly choreographed, alternating layout. So Circle 11 is, uh, is, is, the, is one that was unknown until the 20th century, but you can see there's this very short stones that are probably partially submerged in, uh, in the, the peat and the, 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 the topsoil less than knee height for the most part and they are they look as they think they're kind of mostly sandstone here maybe some granite ones as well but there's a nice there's a nice sandstone one there uh, so this is the location where we would have had the the high status grooved we are um, roundhouse style building which would have been just where we're standing now standing right in front of us here and again it was replaced by this stone circle and the stone circle here is just is is much smaller in scale than the other ones. It's a bit it's a big circle, but the stones are really small, and it doesn't make the same kind of impression. Like you know, it's not it's not a grandstanding ceremonial space. It's quite a it's quite a subdued small space. So again, it reflects the fact that these different stone circles probably had slightly different purposes and meanings, and perhaps origins. And maybe the the nature of this reflects what was when it was in this place um, a thousand years previously. But it's, it's certainly not very grand, and that's why it wasn't found. But if, if there are other stone circles of this scale within the landscape, then they could be out there waiting to be found. Mm. Um, one of the things we can see where we're standing here is the, is the big management problems the Hess have got going forward here with the, these sites because they're increasingly becoming waterlogged because of the um, because there's more rain and because of um, climate change. And so there's, they're going to have to think carefully about how to manage this because when you look back at the Haggerty's excavations, it was the site was was pretty much bone dry. So you know, whereas now it's just it's it's like a, it's like a it's like a pond, and I think this is a this is a major problem going forward for all of these the, all of these sites. And how do they manage this with visitor numbers and keep the the site safe as well? So this is a so this is probably the least heralded of all of the stone circles here, but perhaps in the Neil, I think it had a it had a central purpose. Yeah, and it's probably about maybe a third of the interior of the circle is underwater. There's kind of reedy grass growing up out of it. Um, and the bit that isn't actually underwater is very squelchy. Even the name of this period, Neolithic, New Stone Age, refers to stone, 
the building material for most of the monuments we've looked at in this series. But the main building material for most things 5,000 years ago wasn't stone at all. It was wood. Not just houses, gathering places and farming infrastructure, but monuments too. Big longhouses that might have had similar ceremonial functions to the buildings at the Nessa Brodker. Ditch and platform dug earthworks that ran for miles and incorporated major wooden elements. And wooden circles. These were all major feats of engineering, requiring enormous investment of labour. Macri Moor is one of those places where wood monument building predated the work in stone. It's a common um, trajectory from the Neolithic through the 3rd millennium BC is to go from timber to stone. Uh, this is something that's been a lot of thoughts gone into with like people like Mike Parker Pearson who have argued for the Stonehenge landscape that that transformation from timber monumentality at sites like Woodhenge and the earlier stages of Stonehenge converting into stone monumentality represented a, a shift in focus from the living to the dead that's the kind of the, the kind of an anthropological model that he's applied to that where the landscape initially in the earlier Neolithic is about living people and monumentality and then that's replaced by stone monuments of death and the ancestors and then people start to move away from that landscape and it becomes much more sacred and untouchable. So that kind of model could work here where you've got a living landscape where, where the farming's happening, there's timber circles, totem pole-like things here and wooden buildings and then perhaps there was a switch that happened after the Neolithic when these monuments became much more austere, lonely monuments on their own and people did move away at that point. But but then we have we have so much Bronze Age farming evidence that's not that far away, I don't think we can really quite apply that Stonehenge model to the landscape here. But the, yeah, the, I mean, you, could, you, can, you can look at it as also being a, a, a product of practicality because at some point you might just not have enough trees to build big monuments anymore because wood's being used for all sorts of other stuff. Trees have been cleared from the landscape to farm and then stone becomes a more obvious option. It may be that bigger workforces were available later on and they could move bigger things. So there's a whole range of different reasons why it might have happened, but there's, there does seem to be that clear trajectory where in the, in the late Neolithic, there's, they seem to be interested in putting up big timber posts and then that shifts to stone as we get into the kind of into the copper and bronze ages. Um, but that again, that sequence could mean a lot of different things, pragmatic and symbolic as well. And I know we're not we're not at it now. It's a, mm. a few miles down the road, but you know, earthwork dig, digging shapes into the ground was another mm. of the big ways that monuments were yeah. built, which like the timber ones, is largely invisible to us now because yeah. it's not bits of stone sticking out the ground. Um, so what what is there just down the road and, you know, what, what's going on with earthworks? Yeah, yeah. so the, the, the earthwork component, again, is quite difficult to see, partly because of peat and, 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 and landscape change in the last few thousand years. There is a, the possible ditched enclosure here at Circle 1 and 11, which we only have a hint of, um, and there's nothing you can see on the ground at all. It's, and, and it's only visible, it was only visible in the excavation trench, and that was it. But about... Uh, um, uh, OK, time for a technical interjection. We've started talking about earthworks, which is a bit of a weird concept to get our modern heads around. We can see stone circles or tombs, cairns, and can imagine wood circles or even the big wooden longhouses built on the Scottish mainland. But a really common way for Neolithic people to make monuments was to dig them into the earth. Stone circles sometimes included henges, ditches round the outside, with a raised bank round the outside of that, and the middle of the circle would be called an enclosure. But enclosures didn't have to be round. A cursus monument is a rectangular enclosure made out of ditches and banks, 
or in Northern Britain, often out of timber posts. And these could stretch for up to 10 kilometres. But, sadly, they're almost completely invisible, so don't get a lot of attention. They were mostly on valley plains, so have been ploughed away with crop marks, the only evidence that they were ever here. Back to Kenny. See on the ground at all, and, and it's only visible. It was only visible in the excavation trench, and that was it. But about uh, um, a couple, two kilometres or so from here, we'll get um, the Drumadoon, where there's a possible Cursus monument, which is a an enormous earthwork um, pair of banks, which are visible for about two kilometres, and they're they're 40, 50 metres apart. So it's an enormous rectangular enclosure, and the bank and that monument morphologically looks like a cursus which we'd imagine would belong to the fourth millennium BC. Um, it's, the, it's very rare to find a cursus on an island. It's rare to find a cursus in an upland location and that's quite upland. Um, but from the, I've been excavating there with colleagues from various different institutions for the, for the last couple of summers. We've only explored about 1% of the bank so far but so far it looks like it's a, it's a monument that had an enormous amount of effort to construct with a bank that's almost 10 metres wide, one and a half metres high, eh, with stone component, earthwork component, and it looks like they cleared the, the whole area of topsoil and turf to create this this enormous pair of banks. And that may have been a, 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 a processional routeway that channeled people from the harbour at Blackwater foot up into the Macri Moor bit of the landscape. Because when you walk, you walk along the cursus, which is now very challenging to do because of the vegetation, when you get to the top of the cursus, the, it op- the landscape view opens up right down here on Macri Moor and over towards the mountains. So there's a sense that um, it's part of the stage management of the, 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 the use of this landscape in Neolithic and that people are cu- being guided here by an earthwork monument. The, the challenge with the, those kind of sites because of peat, peat development again is that despite the fact that's huge, I mean that's an absolutely massive monument, it's almost impossible to see on the ground. We touched on this in the earlier programme about the Nessa Brodker, but our picture of Neolithic life in Britain and Ireland is distorted by what remains, and what remains is stone. Wood was used for monuments on a thrilling scale, but they leave almost nothing behind and exist only in illustrated reconstructions and in our imaginations. How can that compete with the spellbinding mysteries of a physical object still standing after 5,000 years? So this podcast is called Stone Me. I'm travelling to all these big glamorous sites like Callanish and uh, the Ring of Brogger where there's big stones sticking out the ground. Um, but does that give a distorted picture of Neolithic life? Do we have a stone bias? We absolutely do. Yeah, there's no doubt that there are that because of the the visual prominence of standing stones and the way they survive in the landscape that we we see them. They're in our faces and they they can become iconic, and yet that that sometimes overplays their their significance. And that we're missing a whole range of really important, significant timber monuments that would have been equally or more impressive, that would have been more difficult to make or build. And there's there are certain examples that if they were if they survived today with their with the oak posts in situ, they'd be world heritage sites because they're of such spectacular scale. So there are palisaded enclosures of the late Neolithic in Scotland, including ones I've excavated at for TV and Leadkette near Perth, where there were, the enclosure was 250, 300 metres in diameter, defined by oak posts that were perhaps eight metres high above ground. And so these would have been absolutely enormous um, arenas for huge social gatherings. And these posts would have weighed, you know, anything from 10 to 20 tonnes. They would have had to drag um, fallen oak trees through woodland to actually create the enclosure. They would have had to dig post holes one and a half metres deep, one and a half metres in diameter, using antler picks and 
very crude digging sticks. So these are enormous amounts of effort and labour that would have gone into them. But even the biggest oak post of that size is going to be gone in 200 years. So we have this kind of invisible Neolithic that's under the feet of many people in the country where um, it's just gone because these, the material doesn't survive. So inevitably, yeah, the stone circles are what we focus on, but there are as many tim timber circles as stone circles, and some of those timber circles would have been absolutely mind-blowing sites if they still survive today. So what we can see above ground at Macri Moor is really only a small percentage of the story. And actually, the standing stones are don't tell us a huge amount really about prehistoric life here. The, the real magic is happening invisible beneath the ground. Kenny gives me a potted history of the site, which is almost the entirety of Neolithic life in miniature. Pottery and burnt material were deposited in ceremonial pits here in the early Neolithic period of the 3000s BC. Then there was a ditched enclosure. Then about 3000 BC, they built a timber circle out of oak and an elaborate high-status house building made out of big wooden posts and containing the grooved ware pottery that we heard about in the Nessa Brodger programme. Then comes something really odd. This ceremonial site became agricultural. There were plough scrapes on the land and evidence that they put up stakes for fencing and field divisions, which is highly unusual. Then came the stone circles at almost exactly the same place where a timber circle had been 1,000 years earlier. This concentration of activity really marks Macri Moor out as a special place. It's, it's very unusual. I mean, there's not that many places where you get lots of stone circles in the same place or lots of timber circles in the same place. And I think that it, it suggests an obsessional marking of this place with ceremonial monuments. Uh, and I think, that, I think it feeds into a broader sense that this is perhaps a place of pilgrimage in the Neolithic period. Uh, Arran is incredibly well situated for connections by sea. You know, we're not far from here. You can see the coast of Ireland. Uh, it's got connections up towards the, the, the Great Glen and north up into central Scotland, up to Comartan Glen and beyond. And also we're not far from the Clyde Coast where you can get across to the Bigger Gap. So people are probably coming here. Uh, and that perhaps had to be serviced by the construction of ceremonial spaces that people could come to as part of their journey here and then you've also got the lure of the island of Arran as a place that has got pitchstone which is a which is a glassy obsidian like stone which was highly sought after in the Neolithic period and we find pitchstone tools all over Britain and Ireland so it's likely that Macri Moor is, is perhaps self servicing a, a kind of a, a, a pilgrimage a pilgrimages of people coming to this island perhaps to get this magical highly sought after material and while they're here they're staying to pay their respects or coming to this well-known location. So we might see Macri Moor as being equivalent to a cathedral where there were pilgrimage routes through the, the cathedrals and people would stop at different chapels depending on what their, their, their allegiances were. Perhaps here also you have circles and people are travelling from one monument to the next to stop for worship or, or something like that. So it may well have been servicing not just local needs but perhaps there was the incoming population of people and those people may have also been building their own monuments or helping build monuments so it was probably quite a dynamic place. There was huge amounts of travel from the Boyne Valley in Ireland all the way up to Orkney mm. um, and so this would have been an important Part of those journeys, I think it would have been. I think it would have been a staging point on those journeys as well. So, and these journeys might have been quite, quite mythical and legendary as well because it wasn't so easy to get around, obviously then. But it was easier to move by sea, probably in the Neolithic, than it was often through the land with dense forests. So it may well be that it was a perfect stopping point for people, perhaps to then their next leg of the journey was to go further north and then cut through the the mainland up one of the straths or the lochs. So, I think that it's that those connections are 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 
based on the geographical location, but also we've got connections through the monumental traditions with um, sites here having the stone circles being similar to sites elsewhere, both in Britain and Ireland. There are elements of some of the megalithic architecture that recall Irish tomb architecture, but also other more unusual sites up, up in Argyll. And then we've also got um, rock art on the island, which has got quite close connections to Irish rock art. And the material culture also tells the same story. We have we have pots that have got similarities. We have um, material found on Arran that's from, for instance, um, axes from Irish sources. And then we have material from here going into Ireland as well. So there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of churn of people, things, ideas and objects. And Arran, in a sense, is right in the middle of that. You know, not, not necessarily the central focal point or a power centre, but it, by, by chance of where it is and because of the, the way that the, the, the natural resources of the island, I think it inevitably became a focal point for a huge amount of things over a, an extended period of time. We know from previous programmes that there was a stream of traffic up and down the west coast as people moved from the Boyne Valley in Ireland via Kilmartin Glen and up through the Great Glen to the east coast and also up to Lewis and Orkney. Kenny says that Arran was a staging post on this route, convenient and important. That made it a holy place, maybe quite a weird place. There's something about Arran that feels a bit more, I don't know, I mean, to me, to me, I often think about Summer Isle and the Wicker Man. It's a bit like an island where there's sort of a, there's a there's sort of slightly strange practices going on. Um, it's maybe more of a sacred island, a magic island. You know, we can think of the, the visibility of Goat Fell from around huge expanses of the areas around here, uh, including from the window of my house in Airdrie. You can see Goat Fell on a clear day. So it makes me think that this was something more of a, a cult island or a magic island that people travelled to, um, but it, didn't necess- it wasn't necessarily a seat of major power. It was maybe something it's serving a slightly different purpose. Like, you know, you might have a, you might have a, you know, a powerful secular leader living somewhere, then you've maybe got a fancy monastery nearby, but the real power lies in the, with the secular leader. In the same way, there may have been more powerful chiefdoms, for want of a better phrase, in the, elsewhere in, in, in Scotland or Northern Britain. And maybe here, this is more of a kind of a religious centre. But I think a bit like even Orkney, Aaron's, the, the megalithic archaeology is so fantastic on Arran it, it, it does overshadow the kind of the stuff that you can't see that's under the ground. But actually, out there, there's a really complicated series of different monuments made of different materials that show that whatever fashion was happening in the Neolithic at the time, it ended up here quite quickly. And so Arran was an incredibly well-connected island. Kenny has already mentioned pitchstone, and you'll remember that the appearance of fragments of this at the Nessa Brodger, Kilmartin Glen and the Stones of Callanish is major evidence that Neolithic people were part of a wider network in society with a shared culture and a sophisticated approach to trading, worship and political relations. But we're here now at the source of that almost magical-seeming substance. Why was it so special? The pitchstone has got, it's got special properties in t- for making stone tools. It's, uh, it's very glassy, kind of volcanic glass-type material, so it produces very sharp cutting edges, rather like obsidian does. Um, and it's got so it's, it's as, a, as a material it's very practically useful it's also easy to source because there's lots of very easy to get to outcrops around the island so there's not it's not particularly challenging to get unlike some materials for making things like polished stone axes also aesthetically it's very it's very powerful material it's d- deep black and deep green colors uh, very shiny and glassy looking which is nothing like any of the other materials that people used to make tools with at the time and I th- and I think that 
there's also the added um, value of what Richard Bradley has called um, pieces of places, where if you have a piece of pitch stone, then at some level you you can make that connection to where that came from, which is the island, the island of Arran. So if you're in Orkney and you've got that, there's a kind of tangible connection with some other place. And so I think that perhaps the, the value of Pitchstone was also tied up with the, the journey to get it, the sourcing of the material, then taking it back to wherever you came from um, or acquiring it somehow. So I think it also had that extra cache as well. And it being on an island, being sourced in kind of mountainous environments and, and places, I think we're all part of the, the value of it. So what we don't really understand, though, is the, is the nature of how that material was controlled, if it was controlled. So um, could you just turn up in a boat on Arran with a, with a bag and just fill it up with obsidian and go away again? Or did you have to pay tribute to someone? Was there, control, was there someone controlling or had ownership over obsidian, over um, pitchstone sources? Uh, or was it, an, was it free for all for anyone to use? And th- those kinds of levels of detail are impossible to get within the archaeological record. But for whatever reason, um, whichever, whichever of those reasons is most important, maybe a combination of all of them, it, was highly, it seems to be highly sought after and it ended up in toolkits all over the place, all over Britain and Ireland. So I'm going to ask you the question I'm asking everybody and everybody hates. Uh, <laughs> stone circles and timber circles, what were they for? Can, can I just say ritual? Is it? <laughs> they were. They were. Uh, they were. I think they were. They were. You have to think about them in different ways. You have to think about them um, in the conception and construction. So you have to think about these as sites that represent and perhaps maintain social cohesion. The act of building timber circles and stone circles kept people together, kept them as a team, kept them as a community, maybe pre- preserved their their way of life. And then you have to think about the materials where they came from in the landscape. The, the um, Colin Richards has written quite evocatively about the. The, the, the construction of stone circles in relation to the journeys of the stones took. So one of the things that's really curious about the, the, the circles here is that no one's actually ever really tried to work out where the stones came from. So if the big, the big dramatic standing stones at circles two and three came from a kilometre away, then what did that journey involve? How long did it take moving those stones? How many people witnessed that journey? Was it something that was memorialised in the same way as the, the actual monument itself and used? So I think we have to think about it coming together and being a, a shared construction project that created social memories. And then the circle itself, we, we can't tell what they were used for, but we, 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 ha- we have to assume people gathered there. Perhaps everyone was allowed in. Perhaps they were, they were, they were, they were only certain members of society who were allowed in. Some people had to stand outside and look between the stones to try and see what was happening or listen to what was going on. So, but but what those what those rites meant, we don't know. Was it about the ancestors? Was it about gods, spirits? Was it about you know hoping that the crop would grow next year? Was it about something completely random? Was it about the fertility of people? Was it about you know, when people were ill, they would go there to try and be healed. We've got no idea. So they would have been, they would have perhaps served a whole range of different social purposes. And then gradually through time, they would have then, the initial meaning and memories would have gone, and then they would have become places that had a different meaning. Maybe they were more ghostly places of the dead, of the ancestors, places that were slightly mysterious or perhaps even taboo in some ways. So they, through even before the circles were constructed, right through to centuries after they were built, they would have had a series of different, conceptions and meanings and functions and uses for people and so to, to ask what does a stone circle mean is, is like a meaningless question because it probably meant 20 different things to 100 different people or to thousands of different people so there are, there are sites that probably served the purposes of the day and they were probably reworked and reimagined to fit into the different scenarios
the circles, the artworks, the, the, the incredible effort and resources put, in, put into art and monuments does seem to speak of quite a profound spiritual life of these people. Yeah, I think I think we 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 don't we don't really understand what their religion or their spiritual life was like. We can only we can use lots of anthropological analogies, but they're not necessarily that helpful. And so we can imagine that they were interested in the fertility of the land and of themselves, and maybe they were interested in the dead, and the, um, and maybe also the the, the the future the future concerns as well. So they may have been interested in trying to understand the movements of the, the sun and the moon and things like that as well, which fits into some of these sites as well. It's, it's, the most, it's the most difficult thing to get to in archaeology when you go back to prehistory, is to actually get inside the heads of people and think, why did they do what they did? What did they believe? Is this an exercise in the use of surpluses? Is the fact that this was when people settled even in one place, they were farming, so maybe not every single person had to search for food every day? Yeah. Uh, is that a factor? Monumentality is, is very much a farmer thing. Uh, and so you could argue that's because they, they have a bigger population, they have a more stable lifestyle in terms of food, the food production chain. They are generally more fixed and tethered to the landscape than hunter-gatherers, and they therefore have more time and the ability to create things like monuments. So, so it could be that the farming lifestyle promoted the conditions that monumentality could happen. But it may also be that the farming created a spiritual need for things like the fertility. Fertility of crops was something that hunter-gatherers didn't need to bother about, um, and maybe also about supporting larger populations and things. So I think that becoming a farmer um, changed people spiritually, and I think that, that required um, religious architecture to, to emerge as well. And I think that's why um, hunter-gatherers have don't don't have the same kind of repertoire of monumentality for a whole range of different reasons what what we don't really know and this is an internal argument in archaeology is whether people people people's mindset changed and then they became farmers or whether they became farmers and then their mindsets changed but becoming a farmer was more than just being able to make bread or to have, make beer becoming a farmer changed everything in people's lives and their their their, their personal relations social relations material culture their toolkit their outlook on life their religion everything changed so farming is a profound change in, in so many different ways and monuments are one of the most material outcomes of that i think you might well wonder what those timber monuments looked like what it felt like to stand among them what the sights sounds and smells were when they ritually burned them down so did Kenny. So, with a fellow archaeologist, he built some to find out for himself. Well, we built a series of uh, timber circles and timber monuments in the grounds of Brodick Castle since 2014. This was working with Gavin McGregor, who's the Director of Archaeology Scotland. And the, the aspiration was really to, firstly, just to see if we could recreate some of these timber monuments at a very simple level, but also to try and replicate some of the Neolithic practices that went on at these sites and to try and engage with the public through doing that. So quite a lot of timber circles and timber monuments in the Neolithic were burned down at some point in their life. That may have been the case for here, although it's quite difficult to get sense of that from the excavation report. So what we did was, in the first year in 2014, we replicated um, the circle, I think it's the circle from the timber circle from under circle one. We replicated that and then we um, built it partly using 
Neolith authentically Neolithic type tools like ant cattle shoulder blades and antler picks and so on, which is a real a real nightmare to dig holes with. But we did it for a while, but then gave up, and then we used spades. Um, and then we we put we we erected those, and then a, a week later we burned them down in a kind of public festival, and then people come up to just watch the the post burn, and we were interested in how easy it was to burn a post down, how long it would take and what footprint that leaves behind. And we did that a few times. We did it with experimental pyres. Uh, and we also, then in the last year, we built a big four-post structure, which is very similar to the four-post setting that was within the, 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 the Groove Warehouse structure here. Uh, and that's, that still stands because we thought it was too dangerous to try and burn down because the posts were massive, but they were quite difficult to put up. But we wanted to give a sense of the kind of... Um, emotional effect it had on people and audiences to see big wooden structures burn down and the last time we did it we had about 300 people in the audience there and it was a really powerful experience and it was and it was incredible it burning and we burnt them down at night as well in the dark so again that's that thinking about you know how these monuments were used at night is quite important and how did it feel to be around a flaming timber circle it was it was emotional it was really special because it, it's because, I mean, I think that people generally like standing around big fires anyway and bonfires. That's my sense from parties over the years. But I think when you then have the added element of a, of a post and the drama, you know, and then, the, the, and then trying to find a way to actually burn the post so it falls over, which is what happened in some cases in the Neolithic. So we were trying to um, replicate some of those processes. So it was hard work as well. So you know, we had to keep feeding the fire. We had to keep, you know, there was health and safety things to think about as well. But it was it was really just quite awesome, the sight of that. So it was something that we, it was a really special, a really special thing to do. Join me next time at Cairnpapel Hill, high above central Scotland, a sacred site for over 4,000 years, where we can see how people constantly reused and remade the ancient sites of their ancestors. If you've enjoyed this programme, then please do share it, or even better, like and review it where you get your podcasts. And you can support more programme making with a small donation at ko-fi.com slash stoneme. See you next time on Stone Me. <laughs> <laughs>